Well, what makes something or someone worthy of your worship? What elicits your, your devotion, praise, and adoration? If someone were to ask you why you worship Jesus, what would you say? What about him makes him so worthy? Worship, after all, is, is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. In fact, it's at the very heart of what it means to be human. We're all hardwired for it. If you walked into my bedroom as a 10-year-old kid and you looked at the posters on my wall, you would have said that, I, that my worship was divided between Indiana Jones and, and early 90s NBA basketball players. And you would have been exactly right. At its most fundamental level, worship is the bending of the heart toward that one thing in life that's most glorious. It's that one thing that, that captures your affection and wins your praise and devotion. So the question isn't, will we worship? But who or what will we worship? Nothing in this life can be more important than this question. Because if to be human is to worship, wouldn't we want to devote our lives to the one most worthy of it? Well, our sermon passage this morning puts in front of us one who isn't just worthy of our worship, but who deserves and demands it in every single way. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 33. Matthew is the first of the four gospel accounts, and, and it's the starting point of the New Testament. Everyone agrees that, that it was written in the decades immediately following the life of Jesus, and, and almost everyone agrees that the apostle Matthew is its author. And Matthew, like the other gospel writers, provides us with, with this deeply textured narrative of, of the life of Jesus Christ, like a, like a delicious cake he stacks layers upon layers upon layers of rich, savory, theological, historical, biographical, and, and soul-shaping sweetness that help us encounter Jesus as, as the king that God anoints to, to save his people and to bring about his reign over all the earth. Broadly speaking, Matthew, he arranges the, the gospel into three sections— the first four chapters introduce Jesus as, uh, as, the, as the promised king from God. The three concluding chapters, chapters 26 to 28, they recount Jesus' suffering, death, and his resurrection. But the meat of the book comes in chapters 5 to 25, and that's, that's where we get this detailed portrait of Jesus' ministry on earth. Our, our passage this morning parachutes us into the center of that, that middle section, the, the center of the whole book of Matthew, in fact. And in this section, two factions about Jesus are beginning to form. There are those who begin to see Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. And then there are those who don't. We even see that happening and those camps taking form in, in chapter 14. As the chapter opens, Herod dismisses Jesus as a nobody. But by the chapter's end, the disciples are declaring Jesus as the Son of God. And the point Matthew is making is, is that Jesus Christ is the true king of God's kingdom. 
And the only appropriate response to him is to give yourself over to him in in greater devotion, adoration, obedience, and faith. So if you're here this morning or you're watching on the live stream and you're not a Christian, my hope for you this morning is, is that you would see Jesus for who he really is and that you devote yourself entirely to him. And to the members of UBC, my hope is that, that you'd also see Jesus for who he really is and that like the disciples, you would give more of yourself over to him, that you'd know the surpassing worth of Christ our King and that you would know something of his heart for you. Read with me Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 33. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Well, this passage, it comes, comes right on the heels of one of the busiest days of Jesus' ministry. He and the disciples have, have just finished up a grueling day, caring for over 5,000 men, women, and children. But now the scene shifts as, as Jesus sends the people away and he forces his disciples into a boat onto the Sea of Galilee while he goes up on a mountain to pray. And while at sea, the disciples find themselves caught in a terrible storm. The circumstances were were actually very similar to the same situation that the disciples found themselves in when Jesus was asleep in the boat back in Matthew 8. The whole situation would have seemed completely familiar to them, except for one massive difference. This time, Jesus wasn't in the boat. In that passage, the the disciples were, were left wondering, what sort of man is Jesus that even the winds and the sea obey him? And in our passage this morning, we get our answer. And what Matthew wants us to see this time around is that 
no matter how stormy the circumstances get, Jesus Christ is a king we can trust. He's an unsinkable king. I think that's the main idea of the passage. No matter how stormy the circumstances get, Jesus Christ is a king we can trust. He's an unsinkable king. And Jesus proves this to us in four ways in the story. Think of these like bullet points on Jesus' resume, qualifying him as the king we can trust. Number one, he's the praying king. Two, he's the coming king. Three, he's the speaking king. And four, he's the saving king. If you didn't get those, we'll repeat them as we go. Point number one, he's the praying king. Well, on this particular day, Jesus had just finished feeding over 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves of bread. And before that, he'd spent the, the day healing the sick. And as the day ends, Jesus quickly sends the disciples on ahead of him in a boat while he hangs back to dismiss the crowds. And what's surprising about, about that opening verse isn't that Jesus would send the disciples on ahead of him, or even that he'd stay back to, to finish ministering to the crowds. No, what, what's surprising is that Jesus would make the disciples get into the boat. The verb there literally means to, to force, to compel, or, or to constrain. Now, why would, why would Jesus do that? Why would he constrain the disciples to get into the boat like that? Well, for one thing, I, it was proving impossible for Jesus at this point in his ministry to get any time alone without sending people away or, or forcing them to leave. But even more than that, given everything that's about to unfold in the passage, we need to see that, that Jesus isn't making some incidental move here. What he's doing is deliberate. Jesus is, is setting the stage in just the right way so that he can reveal himself to his disciples at just the right time. Look at verse 23. Once the disciples and the crowds are gone, what does Jesus do? He goes up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Two times Matthew tells us that, that Jesus was alone on this mountain. Why? Why? Because Jesus wanted to pray. This is the first time we see Jesus praying in the whole Bible. He's taught about it, but we, we haven't actually seen him doing it yet. And the content of his prayer isn't, isn't described. It's not provided for us, but, but that's not the point. The point is that he's praying. In these solitary hours, Jesus is, is at once embodying his own commandment to pray to the Father in secret and cluing us in to his intimate relationship with God. Like Moses on Sinai in, in Exodus 24 and 32, Jesus finds himself alone on top of a mountain praying to his Father. Both physically in the, 
in the act of going up that mountain and spiritually in the act of, of prayer, the Son is ascending to the Father. You see what's going on here? While it may seem obvious that Jesus prayed, it should never be lost on us that the Son of God would pray. He habitually, fervently, and intimately prayed to the Father as only the Son of God could. Only the Son of God could be this faithfully devoted to the will of his Father. Only the Son of God could crave communion with a father like this after an exhausting day of ministry. In fact, Jesus is so devoted to prayer that Hebrews and Romans say that Jesus is praying right now for us in unison with the Spirit according to the will of the Father. Here in these verses, we're we're just getting a glimpse of that. Just a glimpse But Matthew doesn't want us to miss it. Because it's Jesus' prayers in part that reveal his singular and unique relationship to the Father as his Son. It highlights that Jesus is both man and God. It's prayer together that confirms Jesus' status as the Son and his status as the Son that necessitates his prayer. Now, if Matthew wants us to to see that even the Son of God needed to purposefully withdraw to spend time with his heavenly Father, what does that say about our own need to pray? If it's the norm for the Son of God to pray, well, shouldn't it be the norm for those of us who follow him as king? Jesus Christ was and is the perfect man, fully complete in every way, never lacking anything, deficient in nothing, and yet he needed to pray. Prayer was indispensable to him as the Son of God. We never see him treat it as an optional part of his life. It was was the oxygen he breathed. After an exhausting day of ministry, what he wanted to do most, what he needed to do most, was pray. Prayer can't be optional for us either. As oxygen is to our lungs, so prayer is to our souls. If we cut off the the oxygen tube of prayer, we cannot expect our souls to thrive. I wonder if so many of us feel so cold or or like God is so distant from us because we spend so little time drawing near to him in prayer. Too often when, when the pressures of life or the busyness of our schedules push up against us, the, the first thing we tend to jettison is prayer. I had to fight this very temptation this week as I prepped this sermon. And yet, as prayer gets squeezed out of our lives, our hearts grow cold and God begins to feel distant. But brothers and sisters, prayer 
has to be as indispensable for us as it was for the Son of God. He drew near to the Father for our sake. So brothers and sisters, pray like your king prays. Pray with that same unwavering commitment to the Father that Jesus prayed with. It's fitting that what happens next in the story flows directly out of Jesus' time in prayer. And this leads us to our second point. Point number two, the coming king. The coming king. Well, it's seen in verse 24. It now shifts away from Jesus and, and to the disciples struggling to make headway in a storm out at sea. I want you, as the camera pans to the disciples, just to imagine the scene. Jesus is by himself on a mountain in perfect, blissful communion with the Father. And meanwhile, the disciples are tirelessly rowing into the teeth of a raging storm, soaked from head to toe, their little boat going nowhere as the waves crash against them. Last time they'd found themselves in this situation, at least Jesus was in the boat with them. Now he's not even there to help. But in the fourth watch of the night, which would have been between the hours of 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus decides to take an early morning stroll, not along the sea, but on the sea. And as he approaches, the disciples are consumed with fear, believing that they're seeing the ghost of Jesus walking on the water. Now, before we dismiss their reaction, or before we dismiss what Jesus does, we need to put ourselves in that boat with the disciples and see things from their point of view. The Sea of Galilee has a surface area of 64 miles. It's nearly the size of Washington, D.C. So we're not talking about some dinky little pond here. Verse 24 tells us that in the time Jesus had been praying, the disciples had made it a long way from the land. So the text itself obliterates the suggestion that, that what the disciples really saw was just Jesus walking on the, on the shore or, or coming to them on a sandbar in shallow water. No, what the disciples saw in the early hours of that morning, to their eyes, was a physical impossibility. And after a long day of ministry, a physically exhausting night at sea without any sleep, it's no wonder that the disciples mistake Jesus for a ghost and cry out in fear. It should hardly, it should hardly surprise us. Many Jews believe that, that after a person died, their ghost occupied the areas nearby. This was apparently the, the only way the disciples could make sense of Jesus surfing on the waves with his feet. They, they'd spent a lot of time at sea. Most of them were fishermen. They, they knew men don't walk on water. Either Jesus died after he'd sent them away and is now appearing to them as a ghost, or he's alive and well. And if that's the case, well, then that changes everything. Friends, if, if we miss 
if we miss who Matthew is identifying Jesus with here, well, then we have missed the boat entirely. And I mean that pun in every single way. Here in in the pre-dawn darkness, Jesus comes to his disciples, not as a ghost, but as the Lord of creation, as the one who stands over the waters of the earth and subdues them with his feet, as the one who, who alone stretched out the heavens and tramples the waves of the sea, Job 9, 8 as the one who treads upon the sea and subdues the surging of mighty waters, Habakkuk 3.15, as the one who, who makes his way in the sea and cuts a path to his people through the mighty waters, Isaiah 43.16, as the one who paves his way through the sea and treads his path upon the great waters to lead his people like a flock out of the storm of their slavery to Egypt, Psalm 77. 19. We could go on and on. Make no mistake, the same one who was hovering over the face of these waters at the dawn of creation now stands upon them. Only God, only God comes to the disciples the way Jesus is coming to them. Friends, do you, do you see why this king is so worthy of your trust and your worship. Jesus Christ, the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, the one who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, has come. And he's come for us. And he doesn't just come to hang out with us or with the disciples in the storm. But but as we're going to see in a moment, he actually comes to save them from it. The same is, is so true for us. We are caught up in a storm that's bigger, much bigger than the one the disciples find themselves in. And yet in Christ, God takes on humanity's plight And he walks straight into the teeth of a hurricane of his holy wrath against our sin. And he saves us from it. And if Christ doesn't come for us, if our king is not a coming king, then we are as hopeless against that hurricane as the disciples are in that tiny little boat trying to make their way into the waves of that storm. Oh, But brothers and sisters, here comes Jesus. Right on cue, the Savior, the God-man, enters stage right into the teeth of the waves and he subdues them under his feet. What a comfort. What a comfort it should be that, that God doesn't leave us to be swallowed up by the storm of our sin or, or the waves of this world. That he doesn't leave us in our weakness to, to find our own way out of this mess. Instead, instead God sends a king, Jesus Christ, who, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, who now reigns at the right hand of the Father, and who shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead 
and whose kingdom shall have no end. You know, back in verse 22, Jesus made his disciples get in that boat and go to the other side without him. He sent them into that storm alone. And I can't help but wonder if, if many of you in this season of life, if many of you feel like, like God has sent you into the storms of this life alone and that he's left you to find your own way out, as if he's forced you out to sea only to hang back on the shore and, and to watch you suffer and uselessly row with all of your strength and all of your might into the teeth of a raging storm that is dead set against you. Oh, brothers and sisters, I hope you see God's heart for you in Christ in these verses. I hope you see the kind of care and compassion, the kind of control over all things that he alone possesses, the kind of love that initiates a divine rescue plan for, for his children who are lost at sea. Jesus sent them into that storm alone, yes. But brothers and sisters, he did not leave them alone. His son, the son of God, has come for us. He is with us now and he is coming for us again. Jesus Christ is our coming king. But it gets even better because he's also our speaking king. This leads us to our third point, the speaking king. The speaking king. Well, in the next verse, the, the sheer panic and the crippling fear of the disciples is immediately met by the familiar and reassuring voice of Jesus. Structurally, verse 27 is at the center of, of the passage, and it, and it functions like a hinge on, on which the whole story swings. Notice how quickly Jesus is to reveal himself to the disciples. Immediately. Immediately, the text says that Jesus immediately spoke to them out of the darkness. His voice rising above the crash of the waves, the howl of the wind, and even the, the terror and fear of the disciples. He's not the, the kind of king who, who was slow to speak into their fear. And notice, notice too what he says. Two imperative commands. Have courage, take heart. And don't be afraid. And those two imperative commands, they bracket that indicative statement in the middle. It is I. So Jesus, look at what he's doing. Jesus is anchoring those two commands and what he says about himself in the middle. So now the disciples can have courage and not fear because of who he is. What Matthew is, Matthew's doing textually when, when Jesus says those words, translated here in the ESV, it is I, is he's framing the entire story around those words. Now, though it, it is I is, is proper English grammar, I'm a fan of that. I was an English teacher back in the day. 
it fails to it fails to fully convey what Jesus actually said, though. What he literally said was, take heart. I am. The language he uses in its Greek rendering then are, are like a one, two, theologically loaded punch that, that would have left any good Jew kind of just staggering back. It's a miracle that the disciples didn't fall out of the boat when they heard those words come out of Jesus' mouth. The phrase is an explicit act of, of revelation that hearkens back to the divine I am name that God gives himself in the Old Testament. You heard echoes of it when Joe read from Isaiah 43 in our scripture reading. In, in the Exodus story, when Moses starts arguing with God about how he's not the right man for leading the Israel lights out of Egypt because he's not a good enough public speaker. One of the questions Moses asks God is, is what he should tell the people when they ask him what God's name is. You remember how God answers them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And God said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So what God was saying then to Moses is the same thing that Jesus is now saying to the disciples. That he's the unbound God of the universe. The, the one who stands supreme over all things. The creator and the sustainer of the cosmos. The one who, who always has been and, and is now and always will be the OG himself, the great I am. Once again, the son is, is making known to us the father. Apparently, it, it wasn't good enough for the disciples to see Jesus walking on the water in order to get this point. Apparently, they needed to hear him say it too. And what he says, he, he says for two reasons. There's, there's a dual functionality to it. One, it's, it's meant to further reveal his identity as the son. And two, to deepen the trust of the disciples in him. So I am, it, it verbally confirms what the disciples are seeing Jesus do with his feet on the water. And then it's teaching them to respond to him in faith. So Peter, right, Peter doesn't step out of the boat and the disciples, they're not going to fall down at his feet and worship him if Jesus doesn't say what he says about himself at verse 27. Friends, it, it should absolutely marvel us that Jesus Christ is a coming king. We thought about that in our second point. But it gets, it gets better than that even. Because when God shows up for his people, he speaks to them. He speaks to us. It should stagger us that the God of the universe has given us his word. We have his word. That he draws near to us by his word so that we can know him. So that we can take comfort in his care and know something of his very heart for us. I love the way the late J.I. Packer Puts it in his book, Knowing God. He, he passed away a few weeks ago. If you've yet to read J.I. Packer, do it. This is what, what J.I. 
J.R. Packer says. The word which God addresses directly to us is an instrument, not only of government, but also of fellowship. For though God is a great king, it is not his wish to live at a distance from his subjects, rather the reverse. He has made us with the intention that he and we might walk together forever in a love relationship. But such a relationship can can exist only when the parties involved know something of each other. God, our maker, knows all about us before we say anything. But we can know nothing about him unless he tells us. Here, therefore, is a further reason why God speaks to us, not only to move us to do what he wants, but to enable us to know him so that we may love him. Therefore, God sends his word to us in the character of both information and invitation. It comes to woo us as well as to instruct us. It not merely puts us in the picture of what God has done and is doing, but also calls us into personal communion with the loving Lord himself. So Jesus' words in verse 27 are as much a declaration of love for the disciples as they are a declaration about his identity as the Son of God. Jesus speaks because he loves us and because he wants us to know him. And now, because he's spoken to us in love, we can do the very things he commands of us. His word enables us to act in faith. So, so Christian, if, if you want to grow in your faith, increase your Bible intake. The equation is really that simple. It's, it's God's word that enables us to take heart and obliterates our fears so much so that we can follow him in faith in absolutely remarkable ways, which is exactly what we see Peter doing next. And this brings us to our final point. Number four, the saving king. The saving king. Well, verses 28 to 31 have no other parallel in the Gospels. Only Matthew, only Matthew includes Peter's part in this story. And I think one of the reasons that, that he does this is because Peter, perhaps more than any other figure in the New Testament, embodies the, the pendulum swings of faith that we often experience as Christians. He's a picture of, of our own back and forth discipleship. Peter's response to, to Jesus in verse 28 is no doubt a bold request. Gutsy move, Peter. But I don't think he's putting the Lord to the test the way we'll see the Pharisees do in Matthew 16. Nor do I think that he's challenging Jesus' status as the Son of God the way we see Satan doing in Matthew 4. No, what Matthew is doing, what Peter is doing is 
is answering Jesus' charge to take heart. He's boldly announcing his willingness to join Jesus on the water if Jesus commands him. And so, Jesus bids Peter to come. And the one called the rock steps out of the boat and he walks upon the waves toward Jesus. Peter steps out literally in Jesus-focused faith because he wants to be more like Jesus. That's to be commended in Peter and emulated. Now, I'm not saying that, that you and I need to take a boat out on Beaver Lake later this afternoon and, and take a giant step out onto the water and expect to do what Jesus or to expect to do what Peter does. But but Peter's example is showing us something. It's showing us that that, that kind of laser-focused faith in the right object, in the Son of God, will enable us to live in obedience to him in bold and daring ways. But following Jesus with that kind of faith needs to come with a warning on the label. Because doing so could put you in immediate danger. Obedience to Jesus is no, it's not a cakewalk. Do people even know what cakewalks are anymore? I struggled with that one. The point is that the life of faith is going to put us out among the wind and the waves. And if we take our eyes off of Christ, we will sink. Which is the hard lesson that Peter learns in this story. One moment, he's demonstrating remarkable faith and focus on the Lord. And the next, he's doing what rocks do in water. He starts to sink. And it's not that, that Peter lost faith in himself. He never had any faith in himself to begin with. It's that his, his confidence in Jesus withered up the moment he started to consider his circumstances. And yet, and yet, as Peter sinks, notice, notice what he does. Notice in verse 30 what he does. With his last gasp of air, Peter repents. He cries out, Lord, save me. And he cries that out to the only one who's not sinking. And how does Jesus respond to him? Does he stiff arm Peter down into the depths? Does he does he leave him there to be swallowed up by the storm, never to be seen again? No. Of course not. The text says that Jesus immediately reaches out his hand and saves him. Peter's wavering doesn't disqualify him from the Lord's grace and mercy. Oh, brothers and sisters, let Peter's cry of repentance 
and our Lord's response be instructive for you when you falter in your faith. As as Jesus' rebuke to Peter indicates, there's no reason for our faith to fail when it's fixed on the one who never fails. Our doubting is is a pointless endeavor when the God-man is standing on water in front of us, when he's conquering the storms of our life. But even when our fickle hearts fail us, even then in that moment, Jesus Christ never will. He's quick to, to deal gently and compassionately with us when we cry out to him. Listen to how the author of Hebrews describes Jesus in Hebrews 5.2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Or how Jesus describes himself in Matthew 11.28-30. to Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So Jesus, you see what Jesus is doing here? He's demonstrating in these verses just how gentle and lowly he really is with the ignorant and the wayward. Jesus doesn't throw his hands up in the air when we lose our confidence in him. He's not exasperated by our unbelief. He rebukes us, to be sure, just as he does Peter. But Jesus doesn't rebuke us with a backhand. Jesus rebukes us with a smile. He rebukes with a smile when his failing children call upon his name and cry out to him in faith. He's calm, tender, and restrained. He deals gently with those who come to him. And his tenderness toward us isn't based upon the severity of our sin, but on whether or not we will cry out to him. The Puritan John Owen puts it this way. He died a long time ago, but it's still a good time for you to read John Owen. Jesus Christ can no more cast off sinners for their ignorance and their wanderings than a nursing father should cast away a sucking child for its crying. He is able with all meekness and gentleness, with patience and moderation, to bear with the infirmities, sins, and provocations of his people, even as a nursing father bears with the weakness of a poor infant. Friends, Jesus Jesus won't leave you to be swallowed up by the waves any more than a loving father of a crying newborn would leave his own child to be swallowed up by the waves. This this means that the deeper into weakness, into suffering, and into testing that the Lord brings us, the more we will see the quality of his care for us. It's in our weakness that his grace is made sufficient, and we begin to see how, how sufficient it actually is. 
In our low estate, we are often nearer to Jesus than when we're walking on the water. That's, that is certainly and undoubtedly contrary to what we would expect, but, but Peter's cry for salvation shows us that Peter was nearer to Christ when he was sinking than even he was when he was walking. Why? Because Peter and the disciples are now going to get a fuller picture of the kind of king Jesus is. It's the kind of king that can save them. And just, just look at what happens next. What happens, what happens after Jesus' gentle rebuke of Peter? Salvation happens. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. They get back into the boat, and the Son of God stills the storm. This is, this is amazing. Brothers and sisters, your security in Christ does not reside in the strength of your faith. It doesn't rise and fall with the tide of your wavering heart. It is fixed, it rests fixed and firm forever in the indestructibility of your Savior. He stands supreme over the storms of this life. The winds don't break him. The waves don't, don't, don't knock him over. They can't touch him. Jesus Christ has endured the, the wave of God's wrath against your sin. It crushed him on the cross, but death did not bury him at the bottom of the sea. He rose again, and your sin and the storms of this life are subdued beneath his feet. So look to Christ. As long as we fix our attention on our sin and on our failures, we will fail to see how safe we are in him. But as long as your eyes are on the saving king, you will fail to see how you could ever be in danger again. Looking to ourselves or our circumstances, we can only anticipate disaster. We will sink. But if we look to Christ, we can only anticipate salvation. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not, you're not a Christian, I pray that you will see your need of Christ and that you will look upon him in faith this morning. All of us, like sheep, have, have gone astray. We have, we have rebelled and sinned against a holy God. And we deserve to be swallowed up by the wave of his wrath against us. And yet, as we've seen, Christ, Christ comes to endure that judgment in our place on the cross. And he, he now stands victorious over that storm, calling all who would, who would turn from their sin and place their faith in him. So, friend, come to him this morning. 
Come, come to Jesus. He is gentle and lowly to all who look to him and cry out in faith. If we never come to him, the wave of God's wrath will swallow us up. But if we do come to him, we will only know the tender, the wave of his tender love for us. We will be enveloped by one or the other. To no one will Christ the saving king be neutral. So come to him, repent, and believe. The climax, the climax of the story comes not in, in verse 32, though. It comes in verse 33. All right, Peter and Jesus, they're, they're back in the boat. The storm stops, and the disciples fall at Jesus' feet, and they worship him as the Son of God. All the evidence has been leading here. All that they've just witnessed and experienced Jesus do and say now drives them to their knees and to greater trust, adoration, and, and devotion, devotion to Jesus. They worship him. And that's exactly the point. No other king proves this unsinkable because no other king is the son of God. Christ, Christ alone proves worthy of all their worship, and he proves worthy of all your worship and trust. He's come to rescue us from our despair, and he accomplishes that salvation. So give more of yourself to him. Devote yourself less to the things of this world and more to this king. Look less to the ebb and flow of your circumstances and more to the king who stands supreme above them. Look to Christ. Look to Christ, the king who is worthy of all your worship. You can trust him. He's a savior. He's a king who's unsinkable. Let's pray.